1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Find him, and I'll pay you $10,000. That's Madame Blanche, a medium. Being a master spiritualist myself, I can assure you that Madame Blanche is a fake. What do we have to do for the money? Find one man. What's his name? Nobody knows. Where is he? Nobody knows. But let us go on. I see... I see a name strangely familiar. I see a title. The implication is quite grave. Never like them multiple funerals. Cemeteries make my bones rattle. Let us leave these losers and find a winner. Miss Karen Black. If a man my age is going to get kidnapped by a woman, he wants it to be 25. Mr. Bruce Durr. Your husband tried to kill me and you were in on it. Miss Barbara Harris. How can you do this to me, Andrew? And Mr. William Devane, whose charm hides more than it reveals. We'll have to eliminate these two ourselves. Why can't? He's after us! Absolutely perfect. Blanche? Blanche. I've grown very fond of that girl. Are you all right, Madame Blanche? George! The master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, is involved in a family plot. My word. 
What a grave insult. Please don't take it to heart. We have some live ones we'd like you to meet. There's a medium in the family plot. She's a fake. There's a thief in the family plot. Absolutely perfect. There's a kidnapper in the family plot. I bet that thing isn't even loaded. There's even a con man and a wild ride down a mountain. Come on, woman, don't grab me, for God's sake. But who is buried in the family plot? For the answer to this and other startling questions, see Alfred Hitchcock's family plot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spatero, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Sean Whalen. Hey, pleasure to be here, as always. And we are joined by our Alfred Hitchcock crew, which include Trey Hooks and Blaine Dowler. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. I'd like to come up with a good name for, uh, for, for, for the Alfred Hitchcock retrospective. And right now, all I'm thinking is, is it yours presents? But that's not good enough. We got to come up with something better than that. <laughs> How's everybody doing? Great. Yourself? I'm worn out already. I thought we were doing this like six hours ago. I've been online forever. <laughs> but we'll see if if I can add anything intelligent to the conversation. But that's why I have you three guys to to bring up the intelligence level. Anyway. Uh, we, as, as we've talked about, we are going to periodically be covering different Alfred Hitchcock movies on the show, uh, as all four of us are big fans of the movies we've seen. And the more I think about this, the more I think I've seen pretty much all the mainstream popular Alfred Hitchcock movies. And I've seen a fair amount, probably a little bit more than a handful, but not a lot, of the ones that are not mainstream. Uh, so a lot of the movies we're going to end up doing are probably going to be movies that I have not watched before, and I'm really looking forward to diving into that because as a big movie fan and a, a, a fan of movie history, uh, Alfred Hitchcock is somebody who I want to have more knowledge of than I already do. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And the movie we're doing today has surprisingly uh, stayed off of my viewing queue until we decided to do it for today. Uh, it's Alfred Hitchcock's last movie, Family Plot, uh, which was released, I believe, in 1976. Yes, it is. Uh, and, you know, it's one I've always seen. I've seen it in the video stores, and I've gone through my phases where I was, you know, watching movies from particular creators, you know, either actors or, or directors or whatever. And for some reason, I never watched this one before. Uh, now, having watched it, I kind of know why, but that's, that's just it's the point. Actually, I, I'm, I'm overstating that particular comment. But I first watched this for our review today. It's the first time I've had an opportunity to watch it. And I'm wondering if any of you have had the experience of having seen this before. I have not. This is my first time. <clears throat> yeah, I haven't seen it either. I was... Holding it for my last Hitchcock in the Hitchcock walk watch through just because it was his last film. 
and, and <laughs> somehow I could have predicted that because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, much, much like our friend John Wilson, I see you as a m- very much completist where you'd want to start with Hitchcock's first movie and work your way to Family Plot if you could. Uh, so we, we were definitely throwing you off of the uh, collector's OCD that we all have. Uh, but Sean, have you ever seen this one before watching it for today? No, I'm a fan of Hitchcock, and I've been trying to make my way through all the Hitchcock movies. You know, obviously I started with the ones that are the biggies, and uh, this is one that I've wanted to watch before, But uh, and that was why I was glad we were doing it on this, just to have the opportunity. But this was a first-time viewing, so it's uh, it was interesting to watch it now for the first time. So we're all in the same boat on that. Uh, I, just to give my, my quick general thoughts on this, you know, I'm an, I, I don't remember, I know I've watched, but I don't remember what I thought of The Trouble with Harry. Uh, and that's the only one, I, the only other time I can think of that Hitchcock went into comedy. Uh, and this is, you know, this is popularly a black comedy. I only left at one scene in the entire movie. Uh, so <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know if either the irony was lost on me or if Hitchcock failed in comedy. I'm not sure which one. I'm going to be curious to see what you guys thought. But just to give my very quick general thoughts on this, it came off to me almost as if I was watching a TV movie as opposed to a big screen movie. It didn't have the same feel for me that most of the Hitchcock movies I've seen had. It didn't have the same uh, grandeur that they had. And... Again, I'm going to throw out to you guys just to give your initial thoughts and see, you know, what you thought, and uh, I, in whatever order, you guys, you, you guys can just command the command the microphone when you're ready. So I watched, I watched it twice for this purpose, and I came off the first time thinking, "Boy, that was silly," and uh, the second time through watching it. I had a better idea of, okay, he's going for comedy in this one, so let me like kind of look at it a little differently. Uh, I enjoyed it better the second time. It's going to be interesting to talk about this particular film in comparison to Hitchcock. And i got to admit, I walked in the first time with kind of a, I was looking for what I think of as a Hitchcock movie. Um, so the second viewing, I you know, walked in at least with a better understanding of what he was trying to do on it. So it... It had a different sort of flavor the second time through than when I watched it the first time. But it's amusing to talk with all of you to see like kind of what your experience was with this one. Thinking about it as Paul asked the question, this almost feels like someone asked AI to generate a Hitchcock movie. Wow. It's kind of a <laughs> by the numbers, but wow. I mean, Hitchcock did this after he had his pacemaker. He didn't have the same energy levels he did before to the point that he fired Roy Tins two days before filming started because he just didn't have the energy to deal with a difficult actor. It's like a, a paint by numbers, but it doesn't have the soul that a lot of the earlier films had. Wow, I like that. Mm. I, I found it really amusing, and that's kind of the best that I hope for mm. from a, a, a black comedy I, I typically don't find black comedies to be you know laugh out loud um funny and you know i i completely get uh what you were saying paul about it feeling like a tv movie 
you know, some of that, I, I kind of had that feeling, but some of it was, for, for me at least, was I'm watching stars who would who were a bigger name in 76, who, you know, I, I was born in 75, so to me they were the character actors of the mid to late 80s, so they don't all have the same... Uh, cachet that they probably had when they were actually cast in the film. See, of, of the actors in the movie, and uh, we could talk about uh, people who were, who were cast or who they tried to cast and were not in the movie at some point, but of the actors in the movie, uh, Bruce Dern is the only one who I really consider to be uh, a movie presence of any kind of mm-hmm. weight. Uh, Karen Black was probably the biggest star at that time, but I, I've, I've always thought of her as more of a B actress anyway. Uh, and this is, again, this is my take on them. William Devane is probably the best known now, but that's more based on his television persona. Uh, and Barbara Harris, I'm not familiar with a lot. I mean, I'm familiar with her kind of basically, but I'm not familiar with a lot of her work. So this, this doesn't have the star quality uh, that I anticipate. And, and one thing I, I can tell you that was a kind of a misdirection for me is, in my experience, Bruce Dern almost always plays the creep. He always mm-hmm. plays the bad guy. And in this one, you know, he, he's really, you know, and I, keep, I kept expecting him to be the bad guy in this movie, and he really wasn't. So that was a little bit of a, of mis, of a misdirection for me. And, and just to kind of give you... Uh, a response or a further comment on what I had said earlier. The only scene where I actually laughed in the movie uh, was when he was driving and Bruce and Barbara Harris was hanging all over him because the car was going out of control, which is, is a very slapstick moment, which is really not typical Hitchcock at all. Uh, so the, you know, to me, the other humor in the movie was based on, you know, irony and such. Uh, and like I said, it was kind of lost on me. I didn't really feel that I kept looking for, the ordinary person in an extraordinary situation that would be my, you know, my, my, uh, the person to kind of view the movie through. Uh, and they didn't really have that in this movie. And I think no. that's where it hurt me a little bit. Yeah. Our, the closest we have to our heroes are introduced committing fraud. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She's pretending to be a psychic when she isn't. I, when I was watching that first scene, you know, she's faking her psychic abilities and drawing on all this personal information about about the, the elderly woman's brainchild, was it? About her, her wealth and what she wanted. I thought we were being introduced to the villains first. And then as it goes, it's just, oh, no, they're just the lesser evil. Yeah, they're the lesser evil, and therefore they're our, our protagonists. Yeah. I don't even want to say heroes. Yeah. I, do you think that's because... Hit- I don't want to... So, yes, physically, Hitchcock was past his prime, but, you know, one of the strengths of Hitchcock was he stayed relevant far longer than most of his contemporaries did. Do you think there was just something about the themes and the mores of the 70s that just kind of got a little out of his um, grasp? Because... I agree with what you're saying, but the 70s were also kind of the a decade of the anti-hero or the person with 
flaws? So do you think he was trying to, you know, kind of play into the themes of the time? I think that's a good point. And I do think uh, it's very possible uh, that that's exactly true. Because, you know, in the 70s, well, you know, in the 60s, coming into the 70s, we had a transition really from, you know, the, the, the old school Hollywood to a, a whole new of making new way of making movies. Uh, and I thought, you know, his, his movie before this, which we'll cover at some point, was Frenzy back in 1972. So we had a four year gap with, uh, you know, for Hitchcock movies. But I thought that one fit more into the 1970s movie making mode. Uh than this one did. But I do think he may have been trying to fit it in uh, a little bit more of, of what, you know, what the type of film we were getting at that time. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's rare that I can use the word Hitchcock and failure. And I don't even want to overstate failure because I don't think this was a bad movie. I, I just don't, you know, I'm, I'm holding him to a, a higher standard because he's Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and I don't think this one kind of measures up to what I expect from Hitchcock. And I do think it might be because he was trying something new. I did appreciate the attempt at not having a traditional hero. I thought that was mm. something intriguing that was being tried here. You know, where, I mean, to the point of what you were saying earlier, there really isn't. <laughs> the, um, mm-hmm. You're right. I, the first two that were being introduced, you know, especially Blanche, you know, it's, it's a scam. And they don't deviate from being those people anywhere in the film. Um, it's just that they're less problematic than, you know, when you get into Eddie and what mm-hmm. they're doing over there. So it was, I thought that was something that was different than I think than you get from, you know, a typical film, especially in 76. So that part, I, I actually quite liked that and appreciated it more the second time through watching it when I kind of got past my, my first time through, I'm going to admit I had the Hitchcock bias of, I, I was looking for what I feel is a Hitchcock movie. And that was really hard for me to get past the first time through because this did not feel like that for me at all. Um, second time through when I kind of like watched it after I put all that aside and kind of watched it again, um, I still have some issues with it, but I appreciated some of the attempts to do something different and some of them were i thought successful and some of them didn't work kind of quite pan out and but the um that part i thought was intriguing i mean it's like oh there's really nobody's a good person in this even even um what was the name of the uh, redgrave um i didn't think like she was she's like asking for help to find this child that she helped basically alienate (laughs) i'm like nobody here is like there's nobody pleasant (laughs) in the whole but i thought that was an interesting sort of we deal with a lot of very flawed people in this um to various degrees of flaws which is something i think very different there is no pure good person in this i think the closest thing we have to a good person and it's not even that we realize that she's a good person it's just she seems put upon is uh Catherine Hellman as Maloney's wife just because you know you you kind of feel sorry for her a little bit but other than that uh I don't think there is a good person in this movie and and that's I, I there is there is something lacking that I didn't feel that there was a point of view character to latch on to I think Bruce Dern is the closest we have 
Uh, and he's really not a point of view character. At least I don't think so. No, and to be fair to that, the couple, um, yeah, they were using dishonest means to gather their information and convince people that they were psychic. But then they went through it honestly. When I was watching it, I kept expecting them to set up Bruce Dern saying, yeah, here's your long-lost relative. Let's inherit the, the hundreds of millions instead of just going for the, the finder's fee. Yeah, yeah. That would have been more uh, more expected, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think, you know, Hitchcock did want to be different than that. He didn't want to do just exactly what you expect, which is, which is weird to say that in the same breath where I'm saying, well, you know, he didn't do what I expected and give us the ordinary person in an extraordinary situation that I'm generally looking for in a Hitchcock movie. Uh, so, you know, I guess I'm being a little hypocritical in that regard. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit. What makes um, the Bruce Dern character not kind of the average person? I mean, he's he's a cab driver slash aspiring actor in California um, who's kind of dominated and pushed around by his girlfriend. I mean, Bruce Dern plays... I would love to see him play Henpecked again because he does it so well in, in this. Uh, what I, I kind of feel like he is the average schlub in it. But you, you know what it is. I feel like I, I just that's a good point. Uh, I'll start off by saying, but I feel like he's never immersed in the danger or the risk. He's always on the on the periphery, just kind of looking along. He feels like more of a plot device just to move it along to find uh, William fair. Devane and, and Karen Black. He doesn't feel like the guy who I want to relate to. Uh, you know, we, we talk about other movies. To me, I guess the, the prototypical ordinary person in an extraordinary situation, Hitchcock hero, is to me Cary Grant in North by Northwest. Uh, you, you, you're with him every step of the way, and you're rooting for him every step of the way. And you don't want Hitchcock to just keep remaking the same movie. Uh, so I'm not asking for that. But I am looking for the slightest bit of formula there, I guess. And I didn't really okay. feel like I got it in this movie. I no, thought it's interesting. Oh, Goblin. Uh, I do know that Hitchcock liked to set himself technical challenges. The reason he chose to adapt the novel into this film was because he liked the idea of that parallel structure where you start with two seemingly completely unrelated stories that end up dovetailing together, which I think would have worked better, except I kept expecting these two to dovetail together, and there was really only one possible way they could do it, so when they reveal that William Devane is the long-lost heir, I'm like, well, yeah, that you know, we didn't have any evidence to back it up, but it's obvious just because why else would you be telling this guy's story? Because they were so disconnected for the first act or so. I, I was a little. I guess we'll talk a little bit about the performances. Uh, and what what I heard in this one, and it's a little different from what I heard in the past, uh, but somewhat similar. <laughs> it's, it's, it diverted slightly. Uh, what I heard is that you know when they made this, as was typical for Hitchcock, he would storyboard the entire movie, and he was very very rigid on his storyboards. You had to do that. And I've criticized over the years George Lucas for his 
version of that because I always felt like he would sacrifice good performances for making sure everybody stepped uh, on on their right spot and you know as they were filming the scene. Uh, and the criticism I've heard on this one is Hitchcock did a similar thing in this movie. In the past, he did always make sure that he got a good performance out of people. In fact, I've heard of you know situations where he would do take after take after take until he got the performance he wanted. Uh, but it was always you know he he was again very very rigid. He didn't want any anybody to to give any lines that that he you know that weren't in the script. He didn't want any ad living or anything of that nature. Uh, but I did I did feel like the performances felt a little hollow in this movie, and I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't latch onto a character because the, you know it felt like more like they were hitting their spots. I did find myself liking Blanche and uh, George by the end of the film. Like, I, if there's people, I needed somebody to latch on to, and I will say it successfully made them likable. I think the the problem was the journey to get to that point for me was where it was a little rocky. But I will say by the end, I did like them. Which, if you were asking me, is there anybody you liked in the film? Yeah, I, it, I mean, it kind of twisted where I was kind of questioning them throughout like the first half of the film because even in the way that they were pursuing it yes they were they said that they were going to help her they started pursuing it he kept putting on different personas like he was a lawyer when he first was uh, meeting up with Mahoney so it wasn't like he was 100% forthcoming and pure when he was doing it but I also don't necessarily disagree with his approach because he doesn't know a lot of the people that he is interacting with and what their motivations are. So what he's not going to want to be doing is giving, you know, hey, this is who I am, this is where I live, here's my phone number, when you don't know what these people have been up to. And in fairness to him, based on their story plot line, there's some pretty shady characters that he was dealing with. So he actually wasn't that often kind of being a little more protective in what he was doing. But they were doing everything, obviously, for the quick grab of the money right they're looking for mm -hmm. a quick way to get another 10 grand which i love that i'm watching this and i'm like this is all about 10 grand is going to solve everything <laughs> well <laughs> i mean even in 76 10 i mean 10 grand was more money in 76 but 10 grand is certainly not going to be that cash cow that's going to take you everywhere you want to go in 76 but i thought that part was actually kind of charming you know as because once you start wrapping your head around the fact that this is a comedy, um, you know, that part starts to become part of the humor. I would have loved, I, I'm actually intrigued to learn more about the novel. Because I read up a little bit on the novel, and the novel wasn't a black comedy. So I would love to know how, a little bit more about, and I will, won't pretend I'm an expert now on the plot of the novel, but the characters that are laid out here are from the novel. I would love to have seen maybe a little bit more of what he deviated from in the novel, just to see if maybe he had followed it a little bit more, if maybe this would have been a little bit of a different film. But um, it, it was interesting. I did find myself liking George and Blanche um, by the end of it. And it, it was interesting that in the novel, she was a psychic from the beginning. Like, she really was a psychic. Whereas this one played off that she was scamming people with it, and it isn't until later in the film that um, it seems like she really does have those abilities, which was kind of intriguing, that difference. I wonder what made Hitchcock I, that. I 
I'm not advocating that the film necessarily be longer, but what I would have liked to have gotten more of was I would have liked to have gotten a little bit more of Fran because about three quarters of the way through the movie, she starts to realize that Eddie's darker and goes further than she's prepared for. So you kind of get the sense that to her, you know, the ki- the kidnappings and the ransoming for Jules that that that's a lark, you know, murders a step too far. And it, you know, I would have liked to kind of seen her kind of have that more of a growing realization of what exactly have I signed myself up for and gotten into because it starts to happen in the film, but it happens right before the climax, and there's no time for it. I'm going I'm to throw an idea at you guys, and this just occurs to me as we're talking now. I, I hadn't really thought this out, so I'm curious what you think. How do you think this would have played if you flip-flopped Bruce Stern and William Devane? Had William Devane played George and Bruce Stern play Eddie? Because I think that would have been a better thing. I think William Devane uh, had, had a certain charisma to him. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he had a smile that you know, made you like him or whatever. So to have him play somebody who's just a con artist as opposed to a kidnapper really kind of made more sense to me. And Bruce Dern, again, I'm used to Bruce Dern playing the villain. So to have him have the kind of that dark undertone probably would have played really well. I think they're almost both playing against type a little bit here. The The only thing that wouldn't work for me there is Bruce Dern always comes off to me as kind of a distinctly blue-collar type. So I I don't know that he would have worked as um, the expensive, upper-class jewel merchant. I Now, that's just me being bringing my own, like, Bruce Dern biases to it, but I... I, I mean, then again, I mean, the guy's a great actor, so he probably could have pulled it off, but that... That's my initial impression. Was could could he kind of pass for the or would would you buy him as more of that um, influential person that Eddie presents himself off as? See, I'm thinking of him now, and it's a movie again that I haven't seen since the '70s. But I'm thinking of him in the movie uh, Coming Home, where he played a military officer. So he was definitely more. Uh, rigid in his performance and all so i feel based on having seen that again 40 years ago but uh based on having seen that i feel like he could have pulled off the i mean he he definitely would have brought much more menace to eddie than william devane did and and i think it might have added to the see comedy to me even even in black comedy you have to have some some broad strokes in there and I think there, there would have been a little bit more comedy or irony in the fact that, you know, Bruce Dern has this seething dark side to him in, in virtually every movie he's in. And to have the Fran character not realize that early on, there's almost like a comic element to that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he, he could have been just slightly more over the top than William Devane was. And I think it would have been it would have served the comedy aspect of the of the movie better. The irony of the film that I actually, I like, but I feel like, I'm with Trey as far as I felt like there needed to be a something a little bit more, like the little more storytelling in there, because what was happening with Eddie and Fran that I thought was really intriguing, that is an irony of this, 
He didn't have to do any of the things that he was doing. He's rich. And, I mean, that's mm-hmm. what Blanche and George are really trying to get at this point. It's it's if we tell this guy he's rich, we get ten grand. So, I mean, all, if he just realizes the fact that, like, I am filthy rich and goes and sees her, they get paid. That is all they're looking for in this. And that never happens for them. And it's really intriguing because of the fact that Eddie's doing these horrible things. He's kidnapped the bishop and is holding him for ransom. They've got this diamond that people are getting awfully close to him that he's got hidden in the chandelier. And these are none of these are things that he has to do. Fran, I wish I could have seen more development of like why Fran's even with him. Because I thought that George and Blanche, I found that relationship being one where I'm like, I'm starting to get them. I kind of like, I get why they work together. Um, I think during the the death-defying car scene, um, it was I I'm, I was like, I don't know, George, I might Blanche and I might be having a breakup at this point by the time we're done with her shoe in my face. <laughs> but um, I did find myself getting them as a couple, whereas I felt like if there's one area where there's a failure, I did not understand why Fran was with Eddie at all. I couldn't, I did not find any point in time where I understood that relationship and understood why she was there with him. She did clearly didn't like him. Um, at some point in time, they obviously seemed to have been some sort of, some sort of good team together, but their chemistry was just not there. That was the only, like, I kept saying, Fran, just get away from this guy. He's terrible for you. You're you're clearly very, I thought she was one of the smarter people in this thing, except that she was with Eddie. Um, that's where she kind of fell apart for me. But that was a part that I thought was a failing in this type of thing, was their, was their relationship. Because um, they were doing these horrible things. Even the Bishop thing I did find very funny. They go and they inject him. And it's the fastest acting injection I think I've ever seen in my life. Because he was, I think before he was injected, he was out cold. <laughs> and then they, carried, then they carried him away. And nobody is helping the bishop. Like, nobody's like, oh, God. I mean, like, everyone's standing back and letting this happen. I mean, he had a whole audience watching him help somebody else pass out. And nobody thought that was weird enough that they should get involved, <laughs> which, which was a scene where I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I get it. I, you know, it's supposed to be a comedy scene in that part. But I just love how fast acting these injections are that they were giving it. And I, you don't want to spend like 20 minutes watching the person gradually pass out. I get that. But wow, was that fast? What I liked most about the... Um chasing was that <laughs> was that they go through all of that right and they, they miraculously survive it and then Maloney drives up threatens them they have a few words he's distra- he's not paying attention there's an oncoming car he makes one swerve <laughs> fiery ball of death <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> And I don't know if Hitchcock was meaning to be ironic there, but I, I, I did like that, that you had this big, long, involved chase, and they're okay, and he makes one simple wrong turn, and it's death. I, I think that was intentional. I love the line, you better get the police and lose our $10,000? <laughs> now, is, is there any performance in this that any of you felt was, you know, Superior. I don't even want to say outstanding. 
just you know was was worthy of commendation. I I, I come back to Bruce Dern. I, I think this film rests on his shoulders. See, I think yeah. he was the best performance in the movie. I think Karen Black was meant to be the star, though. Uh, but I think he pulled it right out from her. Yeah. I yeah, like he, he just seemed natural the whole time. The, yeah. he, he's the one that didn't, at no point, could I say, oh, he's acting. He just felt like he was the character start to finish. He does have a way, when, in, in the movies I've seen him in, he has a way of always appearing to think about what he's saying as he's saying it, which, you know, which could be, I don't really remember my lines and I have to think hard to remember them. Uh, but it fe always feels more realistic to me. Sometimes when you see these people, especially in the movies where they have the really snappy dialogue, and put out the lines, bang, bang, bang. You think, how could you possibly think that quickly to, to, to say these clever things, which some people are uh, that clever, but, but, with with Bruce Dern, it always feels like he's thinking about what he's saying as he's saying it, and there's some element of realism to that. Like I said, I would have liked to have seen him play the Eddie role because I think he would have even been outstanding there, even more so than he was in in the role he played. But I I agree that he was the uh, the standout in the movie, and I just wanted to touch on. Uh, on the Wikipedia page, they talk about some other casting considerations they had. And they mention uh, Hitchcock considered such actors as Burt Reynolds and Roy Scheider for Adamson. So that could, you know, that that I think as as much as I like William Devane in, you know, in, in general, I think his performance in this was not particularly a standout. So I think either one of them would have been superior as it would have come out. Uh, so he was considering Al Pacino for George. I think he would have been too over the top, frankly. Faye Dunaway too expensive. So. Well, that's that's part of the reason why none of these people got in. Uh, yeah. Faye uh, Dunaway for Fran. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bruce Dern actually asked Hitchcock why he was cast in the role, and Hitchcock said, because Mr. Pacanow wanted a million dollars, and Hitch doesn't pay a million dollars. And it took a while for Dern <laughs> to realize that Mr. Pacanow was Al Pacino, yeah. Uh, the, the one interesting thing that they have here is they mentioned possibility of Goldie Horn for Blanche. And I think Goldie Horn would have had a similar feel to her uh, from Barbara Harris. Uh, I, I think they are kind of cut from the same mold, but I think Goldie Horn would have been superior in the part. I think, I think Goldie Horn is a better Barbara Harris. So I would have liked to have seen her. I'd agree with that. I. I did like Barbara Harris as Blanche, though. Like, very similar to what we mentioned with Bruce Stern feeling like George, like, more organically. I didn't feel like Barbara Harris felt like she was pretending to be Blanche. I felt like she was Blanche. Uh, if the people that I thought were a little more wooden were on the other side of the camp with Fran and, and Eddie, I never, like, they they felt just very wooden. I, there's no other way to say it. Whereas I, I started to see... Blanche and George kind of just relaxing and being themselves. I got the chemistry between the two of them. Um, the only the only scene was when they were going down that hillside dive um, in the car that I, I'm i like, George, how are you not pushing her out of the vehicle? Because <laughs> she was hanging on his tie at one point in time. <laughs> and she had, she had a foot over his shoulder. 
The second time through, I will admit, that scene I was laughing through. Um, the second time through. I thought that was fun. The first time through, I wasn't... I was looking for a different kind of film, and I had a lot of trouble getting past that. But the second time through, I did find that scene humorous um, in seeing it, because it was so over the top, which is not a, a Hitchcock thing to do like in that particular manner. But Blanche was the one in that scene where he pushed her into the back seat, and she was so committed to choking him or putting her foot in his face that she got back in the front seat. <laughs> yeah, that I mean that that definitely was you know again slapstick. So it it wasn't what you expect from Hitchcock, and it isn't even what you expect necessarily in a black comedy. What I think we needed a little bit more of to emphasize the black comedy was just some, a, a little bit more clever dialogue than we got, and that and that's where I, I guess I feel it fell short. Um, Barbara Harris's performance was fine. <clears throat> this is not her fault. There, there is something about the tone of her voice that kind of sets me <clears throat> on edge. I have a problem watching Freaky Friday for the same reason. I, I, I don't know what it is. Just something about it um, quirks me. I, I would have liked to have seen uh, Brenda Vaccaro play Blanche. I think that would have been interesting casting for someone contemporary. Mm. Well, I, like I said, I, I kind of liked the idea of Goldie Horn having it because I think Goldie Horn does comedy better. But mm -hmm. you know, but I'm, I'm I, I would have been okay. And I, thought, I also agree with you that I didn't think Barbara Harris was bad in the role. I just think we could have upgraded the comedy level a little. If we're going to do a comedy, I want a comedy. <laughs> here's, uh, here's where it sets a different tone for the movie. If you've got Burt Reynolds in as Eddie and you've got Goldie Hawn in as Blanche, you know what kind of movie it's going to be in comparison to the casting that the film has. That's true. It, it would have set a very different tone right from the get-go. If I see Burt well, Reynolds in there, I'm thinking comedy. No, but you got to think Burt Reynolds, 1976. And yeah, you have, you know, Smoking the Bandit stuff and all of that. Mm -hmm. But you also have Deliverance and The Longest Yard and, you know, movies where, where it's, it's not necessarily slapsticky. Uh, so I think you could... You know, I think he did a lot more comedies as time went on when he was doing Cannonball Run, and uh, you know, which one one of my favorite black comedies at the end. Uh, so you know, there's a lot there. But uh, so any, what any, if anything else? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to throw this out there. What if you swapped Barbara Harris and Catherine Hellman? Because this was before she was really known for her comedy chops, hmm. but she definitely has them. Looking at Catherine Hellman's, not on Who's the Boss, but on Soap, where she played Jessica, I think that performance, that level of performance could have easily translated into this movie and played it well. I think that would have been okay. And, you know, I feel bad that we're hitting on Barbara Harris, who gave a perfectly reasonable yeah. performance, and yet she's the one we're looking to recast. You know, realistically, I, I felt like Karen Black's performance was a little wanting and yet we're not looking to recast her at all i think it's because fran wasn't really a big part of the film yeah. and you're right i think karen black was meant to be she's front and center on the film poster but um out of the four leads uh fran kind of has the least amount of screen time and is kind of the least important of them but who who would you if you could recast you know, you're taking Karen Black out and putting else in. Is there somebody who you think this person 
better and would have made it a better movie. I think the person needed a better script. I'm just saying for Fran. Yeah. I, I feel I felt like the scene I think that's what Trey's getting at and I I, I agree with it. I think that there wasn't a lot for Fran. I'm, I get where you're going, Paul, and I, I don't disagree that maybe a casting change would have been good for Fran, but I think in order for that person to have brought something, they needed more. Because Fran just comes off as, like, thug number one almost for Eddie, versus I don't believe, like, there's any kind of relationship between the two that's, like, romantic enough that, like, I believe that there's, like, and, and there isn't enough scenes to, like, make you feel like there's that thing between them. Um, other than the fact that they just seem to be thieves that are working together, um, if, if anything, we get more out of the relationship between Eddie and Mahoney than we do out of Eddie and Fran. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Fran is closer. Go ahead, Blaine. Yeah. Uh, you can finish your thought, sorry. No, 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 you're good. Actually, um, I'd love to hear what you think. Okay. Uh, Fran was more of the prop to execute Eddie's plans than a character. I think that's the issue. She I, was very, very utilitarian, but no depth. I agree, and I think you needed a strong actress. And I'm, I'm trying to come up with somebody in my mind that I'm just drawing a little bit blank because I hadn't given this thought before we started recording. But I'm trying to think of an actress that's strong enough to bring enough to the role that with a slight tweak to the script could have been more than just a plot device. So, so this may be a little too early for her to be contemporary but the name that jumped to my mind was kathy moriarty oh yeah that's that's not not a bad choice i mean she was she was fairly young in raging bull in 1980 so she might have been too young for this in 1976 or 75 when they were recording it uh filming it rather uh but you know based on her later performances i would say yeah she she might have the gravitas to carry that role um yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a little bit of a blank, but I'm sure there's somebody out there that we could say. And, uh, you know, I'll openly admit I'm really not that much of a Karen Black fan to begin with. She, I don't have anything against her, but I can't say there's one performance out there. I, I guess her most famous performance is Trilogy of Terror. Uh, and that's that's more on the gimmick of the storytelling and the Twilight Zone type uh, night gallery type episodes that they put together uh, as opposed to her acting performances. Uh so I'm, I, I can't really go much, you know, on her. Uh, but I'm sure there's somebody out there, like I said, if we if we put our heads together, somebody they could have cast in 1975 that would have been bringing a little bit more to the role. And then the one thing, you know, you got to keep in mind, too, though, is even in the event that you put a better actress or a stronger performer in there, uh, Hitchcock was apparently very, very rigid and didn't, you know, wouldn't have said, okay, yeah, you could just change the line here. To, to make it better. He, he was not going to allow that. So now, I watched this without having seen in advance who scored it. And as I always do now when we're doing it for the sake of recording a, a critique of it, I paid a little bit more attention to the score than I normally would if I was just sitting and watching the movie. And quite frankly, it's I know it's blasphemy, but I thought the, I thought the score was kind of TV movie-like and by the numbers. I did not feel that this score stood out. And it turns out this is John Williams coming off scoring Jaws and doing this. And it's like, oh, my God, what, you know, was he tired from Jaws? You know, (laughs) what was he doing here? Uh, And and it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't nothing special at all. 
I wonder if he was constrained by Hitchcock, because given a free hand, John Williams will score almost every minute of film. And this is more typical like Bernard Herrmann did, where there's just scenes of accent. So we might have 30 minutes of score in this two-hour film, whereas a typical Williams would be so the full two hours. So I wonder if Hitchcock was saying, well, my dear friend Bernard Herrmann has passed, so do your best Bernard Herrmann impression, rather than be yourself. So, you know, I think with a free hand, uh, if he wanted to, I think that John Williams could have added some of the comedy elements to the movie in the score that would have led you more to the humor. Uh, and I think it, it could have brought the movie up. And I think you may be right. I think he may have been very constrained because this does not feel like a typical John Williams score at all to me. Uh, and I did see, uh, again, you know, we're talking Wikipedia, but I did see on the page where they said, one, he wanted to have the, uh, the chorus singing in the background when Barbara Harris was pretending to be psychic, which did not happen. Uh, and he also did push John Williams certain parts where he wanted to score it. Yeah, honestly, the part that stood out to me the most was the lack of score when they were careening down the hill with no brakes. And that could have been, a, you know, you could have added, you know, you don't want the score of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World there, uh, where it's just total slapstick scoring. But I think John Williams uh, was clever enough, is clever enough, uh, that he could have put a score there that would emphasize the humor without making it seem silly. His second job was incidental music on Gilligan's Island. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. I kept thinking that as as I was thinking about the score afterwards, saying, you know, well, you know, at, at first I started thinking he's coming off all his TV uh, shows, and and he's, he gave this a TV movie score, but he is coming off of Jaws, and he had done the Poseidon Adventure, and he did. The Cowboys, mm -hmm. also a Bruce Dern movie, one of my favorites, by the way. Uh, he, he had done some really excellent scores at this point. So, you know, either he didn't live up to what he was able to do or he was constrained. It's one or the other. I don't know what it is, but I did not care for the score in this. I thought it was very by the numbers. Yeah, I think it's probably the weakest John Williams score I've heard. And that's not to say it's bad, but like you said, by the numbers. It didn't stand out in any way, shape, or form. So, do we have any other points to make on this one? Any other notes or anything that we haven't covered? Um, Hitchcock cameo? Oh, yes. We, you know what? Uh, it's worth giving a little background on that. Since we are going to be doing a Hitchcock retrospective, uh, we would like to do... You know the where where's Alfred sequence uh, of uh, each each movie that we do since he does make a cameo in every movie. So let's start off with well, we've done three Hitchcock movies before this. Uh, the first being Psycho, uh, and if I remember right, that's when he's crossing the street. Correct. Uh, he's seen through an office window, and that's mm -hmm. about the seven minute mark. He's got a, a cowboy hat on for that one. <laughs> yeah. He's outside the real estate office. Um, uh, you also have um, his, his daughter in that film. She's one of the co-workers of uh, Marion, played by Janet Lee. Okay, and then we did the original Man Who Knew Too Much. Where is he in that? Uh, about 33 minutes and 25 seconds in, according to the Wikipedia list of 
Hitchcock cameo appearances I have here. That's the one where he's walking across the road in a dark trench coat while the bus is going by. Okay, maybe I was getting yeah. two of them confused. Yeah, and the uh, 1956 version at the 25-minute mark, um, he's at, on the left in a suit with his hands in his pockets while they're watching the acrobats in the marketplace. And that's this, one, without the widescreen version, you don't see it. He gets cropped out. In this particular movie, I thought he was not particularly subtle about his cameo. Uh, although I've heard of people saying, oh, I don't know where he was in this one. It, it seems pretty obvious to me. Uh, especially if you've watched Alfred Hitchcock Presents, because it almost feels like it's uh, an ad for that. But, uh, Blaine, where is that one? Uh, here it's at the 40-minute mark. You see him in silhouette through the office door at the Registrar of Births and Deaths. See, now, if John Williams had free reign and wanted to be really clever, wouldn't it have been nice if at that point he threw in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents theme? The Funeral March of the Marionettes? Yeah. Just maybe a subtle version of it. You know, you don't want to make it too obvious, but it would have been funny if he had put something like that in there. And, you know... I understand black comedy is different from slapstick comedy, but you are supposed to at least find things humorous. So I wouldn't have minded that. So, yeah, we'll make that a regular part of our Alfred Hitchcock coverage that we're going to cover that. Anybody have any any thoughts about any of those? Particularly clever, particularly not clever? Um, I just did want to throw out the history of the Hitchcock cameo is that it started with the silent films he was doing in Britain because everybody who worked on the film would have a cameo. Because that way they didn't have to pay extra for the extras. You know, it would be the director of photography would play this character, and Hitchcock was that one. And then when he came to America and had bigger budgets, he didn't do the cameos anymore because he knew he was not a very good actor and he didn't need to save the money. But he found that the fans of his weren't letting go and getting completely involved in the film because they were too busy looking for that cameo. So they, they never f- forgot that they were watching a movie and just got involved in the story. So then he went back to doing the cameos, and from then on, they were pretty much consistently in that first act. So Which makes re- sense. They dissuade that people can stop looking for him and watch the movie. Yeah. So as we go through, there will be some where he has no cameo. Some, especially the early British ones, like The Lodger, he's got two. Because they were just, as we said, saving money. Yeah, so it's, I guess it started out as a uh, financial thing, and it eventually became a gimmick. But, yeah. Uh, but a fun but, gimmick. Yeah, and one that Shyamalan uses to defend casting himself in major parts in his own films, and because he says Hitchcock is one of his heroes. It's like, hey, yeah, well, if I know this about Hitchcock, so should you. So stop doing it, because at least Hitchcock knew he was a bad actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, agreed. Uh, so, okay, so how do we rate Family Plus? Who wants to go first? I'll go. It was Jaws 3 for me. Um, I'm glad I saw it. I, If somebody asked me, should I see it as a Hitchcock fan, there's other movies I would recommend, obviously recommend first. Um, I think from a Hitchcock history standpoint, it was a great film to watch for that. I watched it twice, not because I had to. I kind of I wanted to watch it again after I got out of my own way. And I found that I liked it more the second time through. Uh, it is not a movie, though, like, at this point, it's not one I'm going to go, geez, I've got to go and watch it again. But I also, I wouldn't, like, hate watching it again. 
Um, but it's not going to be one that I'm going to seek out. So it, it, that kind of winds up being a Jaws 3 for me where I just I don't feel like this massive need to see it again um, other than that. But I, I'm glad I did for this purpose. And um, there's I certainly liked George and Blanche. And there was some scenes that when I understood more what I was supposed to be enjoy- watching, you know, that it was more of that comedy piece, um, there were elements of it that I enjoyed a lot more when I understood what the film was supposed to be. I'll admit that was where I was in my own way, but um, that's kind of where I'm at with it. I, I would agree that it's Jaws 3 for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned. I don't regret seeing it, but it's very by the numbers. It's not one of his classics. I mean, Trey and I often lament the fact that he never actually won Best Director and he'll, only one of his films took Best Picture. This is not one of the ones that should have been nominated, let alone win. It's it's there, but again, it's still not a bad film. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. his filmography has set the bar so high that it feels like a letdown. So again, happy I saw it. Won't go out of my way to see it again. So yeah, to me, that is the Jaws 3. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement with everyone else. I think for me, it would be a high Jaws 3. Um I, I, I really found it um, amusing, and it would definitely be one that I would watch again. Um, if I'm only going to watch one Hitchcock movie, is this the one I'm going to grab? No. Um, it, you know, uh, Paul's often mentioned in the past, you know, if you know if he was flipping channels and it was on TV, would he turn it off? If, for me, that would be a no. But we're not in an age to where we've really flipped channels on the TV in anymore. So you, you know, you do have to be more uh, conscious. So that's that's why I give it a high Jaws three. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm also in the Jaws three uh, rating on this. I as as a movie fan, as a Hitchcock, uh, I, you know, I, I I I'm not going to even say as a Hitchcock fan, even though I like Hitchcock stuff a lot. I don't feel that I have enough of a background to consider myself a fan. I, I'm, I'm more of a movie fan, and I've learned of Hitchcock, and I've loved most of the stuff I've seen from him, but there's so much of his film, filmography that I haven't seen yet, and that I'm going to see as we do these, that I feel like I can't necessarily define myself as a Hitchcock fan. Uh, and and that's, that's purely based on the amount that I've seen, not as... Uh, uh, my, a reflection on what I think of his work. I think his work is incredible. But as some from the Hitchcock movies I've seen, which would include you know all the mainstream ones and some of the lesser knowns, um, I I think this one comes up short. I don't think it's it's it has the creativity that I expect from Hitchcock. It doesn't have the ability to pull me in and make me feel like I'm part of the story that Hitchcock has done in other movies. Uh, as we mentioned, the score seems to be so far. Overall, this feels very by the numbers, uh, as Blaine said. Uh, it doesn't have any one aspect of it where it really stands out as, this is why you should wa- why you should be a fan of Hitchcock. Uh, that said, it was very watchable. It's not that I had a problem with it. It's not that I'm going to say it's a bad movie in any respect. But I also don't feel any desire that I'm going to ever seek it out to watch it again. So, you know, I'm glad I did, but that's now in the past. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's almost by definition a Jaws three. You know, watched it and done. So that's where we go. 
So now, before we started to record, we started to discuss what Hitchcock movie we're going to do next. I don't know when, you know, our, our schedule is going to be somewhat erratic on these Hitchcock movies, but uh, I think we landed on The 39 Steps, which is an early Hitchcock movie, uh, and I would say it's been 40 years since I've seen that, and uh, I'm looking forward to watching it again. I believe it's available on... Actually, no. I don't know that it's available. Uh, it, well, it's fallen into the public domain, so it is available in a lot of places. You could probably find these copies on YouTube. I haven't checked because I have the Criterion Collection uh, edition of it. It's one of the ones that they selected. But yes, just the fact that the 39 Steps has fallen into public domain, like a lot of his early British works, means uh, it's fairly readily available. For what? Uh, just doing a quick set search. It's available streaming on Max, which go Max, on Tubi, on Pluto, uh, and several other platforms. So it is widely available if people want to watch it before we do our episodes. This way, when we're talking about it, they have the same background. Uh, I think that's cool. But in the meanwhile, thank you guys for coming on. Uh, and as always, I think it's a good time for you to. Mention the other movie show that you guys are somewhat involved in. Somewhat. So Trey and I co-host 99 Years 100 Films, which is the podcast I alluded to earlier, where we go through all the best picture winners. So we did a lot of Hitchcock talk when we covered Rebecca, since that won best picture. And then there's years like... The year Psycho came out and Rear Window and a bunch of his big hits where we're going, why wasn't this the winner or the nominee? So, Yeah, I think as of this recording, our most recent episode is The French Connection. Um, I think that's correct. I think that's what I saw most recently. Yes. Yeah, so next up is The Godfather, which I have edited, but it's the one that's going to be released I hear that was a good movie. The end of the... <laughs> it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, uh, even though we've never done it on this show, I'm gonna say it's chores. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks again, guys, for coming on, and uh, I guess we'll catch you next time. Let me ask you a bit about your thoughts on violence on the screen and all that. It's interesting because that uh, clip we showed from Psycho. Uh, was from a film that was edited quite a bit when it was shown on primetime television. Some of the scenes were considered too... Some moments of scenes were considered too awful to show. In how those do you, days. How do you feel about that? Well, there's more permissiveness today, but don't forget that's ten years ago. Things were quite different then. You, you think if they showed Psycho now, they would, st they would be able to show every scene oh, that they shot? Oh, I think so, without a question, sure. Really? I, I doubt that, because they were they were rather worried that we were showing anything tonight from that. Well, there's a different approach for television than there is for movies. Oh, yes, I meant on television. That on television, ah, no, no. Television, the same conditions apply to Still, yeah. Yeah, I see. I didn't know uh, that. But I'm surprised, yeah. really, that uh, in English television, when I was over there, they allow a certain amount of nudity on English television. Complete nudity on English television. Yes, considering yeah. the weather over there, I'm surprised. <laughs> they must heat the studio somewhere. I know what you mean about it. But Somebody it, it's asked true that me the other day, how long did I think nudity would last on the screen? 
and I, if he wouldn't think me too vulgar in saying, I said that uh, all breasts sag eventually. <laughs> Next question. You have research to prove that? Uh, no, I'm afraid I don't. No. <laughs> uh, in, in, in that scene from Psycho, you had a curious effect that it seemed that uh, that uh, Balsam seemed to be almost floating backwards, which added to the the horror of it a bit. It was like a dream. He seemed to be almost in slow motion a bit as he fell backwards. And I realized the second time I saw it that that was where part of the fright came from. Well, the, the point is that um, if a person falls, they are fighting the fall. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't just drop back. You know, if you're falling back, there's an effort to to prevent it, and I think you get that effect there. But didn't you do something special in the shooting of that, or did you have him suspended? Oh, well, it was, a, it was a double printed thing. It was. He didn't fall down a single stair. He sat in a very comfortable chair and just lay there like that. Is that right? Yes, we made the background first of moving down. Well, I'd love to know how you did all, I've done all of those things. Well, a lot of the well, answers are in the that's how earn their money, you see. Yeah. By not having to do the things they're supposed to do. You uh, you called actors cattle once in your career and um, offended a few well, of them. Well, I think at the time, I think I said, well, I was accused of calling actors cattle, mm -hmm. and I said that um, I would never say such an unfeeling, rude thing about actors at all. What I probably said was that all actors should be treated like cattle. <laughs> And, and you went on to do that. Uh, in a nice way, of course. Yes. Fed them at the right hours and uh, brushed them occasionally. Well, uh, you, uh, I, I know you, um, what one actress got you for that somehow. By She once uh, had some cattle brought onto a set or something. That was a famous name. Carol Lombard. Carol Lombard, yes. Yeah, yeah. And she was a woman with a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And I arrived on the set the first day of shooting, and she'd had a corral built. And in it were three live calves with the names of the actors on big discs round their necks. You know, it, 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 it is, in finding out some of the things that you've done, reading about them and all, um, it's amazing how much is the director's work and how little the actors are needed. And uh, in a way, you, you, there's a devastating example you gave from a Russian filmmaker, Pudovkin. It yes. had to do with the actor's face and then the... Uh, well, uh, if I may interrupt you a moment, mm -hmm. Walt Disney had the right idea. If he didn't like the actors, he tore them up. <laughs> but uh, you talked about the, the, the Russian filmmaker... Ah, the power of film. That, that, yeah. That's uh, how strong film can be. Yeah. Well, I did the production section for Encyclopedia Britannica for the last edition. And in it, I describe a scene such as in the picture Rear Window, yes, where you have a... James Stewart, a close-up of him, and he looks, you see, and you cut, we'll say, for example, a woman nursing a baby. Now you go back to Mr. Stewart, and he smiles. So what have you demonstrated? That he's a nice, benevolent gentleman. Now take the middle piece of film away. He looks, he sees. Now cut to a girl in a bikini. And he smiles. Now he's a dirty old man. <laughs> and it's the exact same smile. Exact same smile, yeah. the same look. The subject is changed. 
And you said that there's even, even more dramatic example. That was a Russian filmmaker who showed an actor's face and then a dead baby, and then the actor's face, uh, yes. and then a bowl of soup, and then the actor's face. And in each case, it was the same shot of the actor's face. But in the one seemed to be sorrow, and the other seemed to be hunger. Hunger, that's and quite could, true, yes, yes. So you could get an Academy Award performance for an actor with only one shot of him, really. Well, I did it years ago with an actress, and uh, I found her very difficult. And uh, I did all her close-ups and said, look here, look there, look down, look across, move around. And go home. And go, then you may go home. And I brought in... <laughs> another actress yeah. and I used all her hands and she was cutting meat and uh, and it was the prelude to a murder scene and you just put everything around it I use the hands only yes Gee. is there a scene you wouldn't do over again are you, are you sorry you did some I'm thinking one specifically the boy with the bomb well that was because I made a terrible mistake of, of having a boy carry a bomb across the city. Mm -hmm. You, the audience, knew that it was a bomb. And I built it up and up until the various clocks and all the hold-ups. And you knew it was going to go off at one o'clock, but I let the clocks go one minute past one, two minutes, and work the audience up. And then I let the bomb go off. And he was on a bus and it blew the whole thing completely. And uh, I remember I was at the press show and a woman critic came up with both raised fists and said, how dare you do a thing like that? Even a hard-boiled critic was taken away with the whole thing. I'd made the mistake in not relieving them at the end of the suspense. In other words, if you mm -hmm. put an audience through the mill like that, you must relieve it. The bomb must be found and quickly thrown out of the window. Then it goes off out there, and the audience are relieved. And if you had it to do over again? I'd never let the bomb go off. Gee. What would you do with the rest of the movie? Um, well, I mean, uh, well, that wouldn't be the last scene in the movie. No, that's true. But is it, was, it because the re uh, was it also because a child was killed in the scene that they thought it was too brutal? No, I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is that uh, an audience gets worked up yeah. and they need relief for example if anybody goes on a roller coaster mm -hmm. they scream it goes down the big dip and up and around they're screaming all the time but always get off giggling yeah or you go to the midway and you pay money to go into the haunted house and skeletons jump up and the floor does all kinds of things but they always come out giggling now the question, why do people pay money to be scared? Do you know the answer? Of course not. I earn my living doing it. <laughs> Better not to question it. What would my starving wife and child do without us? <laughs> or your starving self. For that yes, idea. that's right. <laughs> we, uh... By the way, I should explain, there's always somebody who misunderstands. A child was not killed in the making of the movie. It was in the scene itself, supposedly. Someone always writes it and it's misunderstood. We'll be back after this.